Nigel Mansell and McLaren, two of the great names of Formula One in the 1980s and 1990s, finally joined forces in 1995, but it was a marriage that was doomed from the start and only lasted two races. Welcome to the latest episode of Bring Back V10s, brought to you by TheRace.com, where we take a look back at a golden and noisy era of Formula One. As always, you can get in touch with us through our social media channels using at WeAreTheRace and the hashtag BringBackV10s. And remember, we want to hear your comments and questions for our final episode of the series, where we'll be answering all of your questions about this era from 1989 to 2005, the V10 era, if you will. On this episode, we're looking back then at why things went so badly wrong and so quickly for Mansell and McLaren. And joining me to look back at one of the more bizarre high-profile driver and team combinations are Sam Smith and Jack Benyon, both making their first appearance on the podcast. Gents, welcome. And as always, we've got our traditional opening question, which we'll throw to you first, Sam. When you think Mansell and McLaren 1995, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Surrealness, I think. I think just the unlikeliness <laughs> of Mantle driving for McLaren. Simple as that. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 somehow that crash helmet didn't look right in Marlborough colours, I think we could say. What about you, Jack? I think sadness is the word. Uh, it's just such a, you know, two giants of the sport that should have come together and created such a, a fantastic story. And obviously it, uh, as I'm sure we'll discuss on this podcast, didn't quite work out as planned. Yeah. And as we say, bizarre and an unexpected alliance, really. So how did it form? Because obviously at the end of 1994, Mansell had done a clutch of races for Williams. He'd won his last race for Williams at Adelaide. And following the four races he did in 94, he was hoping to get a Williams drive for 1995, but Williams didn't take up that option. And I think they actually had to pay Mansell some some money to, to not do that. We won't spend too long on the Mansell-Williams saga because that will get an episode of its own in the future. But Mansell was disappointed to miss out on the drive. And in one of his many books, he talks about the fact that he found out a day in advance of Williams telling him because he found out through the media, which he wasn't happy about, and he didn't get a proper explanation from the team. So his assumption to this day is that Williams chose youth over experience because they didn't have to pay David Coulthard as much money as they'd have to pay him. Jack, looking back now, do we think, given how strong Mansell had finished 94 with Williams, did they make the right decision to go for Coulthard or was that a surprise perhaps? I think that's the key, isn't it? He had such a strong end to, to 1994 that I think probably most people at the time just assumed that they were they were going to stick with Mansell and, and go with him. And uh, I think it was a bit of a surprise that they didn't. But, you know, Hill maybe could have done with a, a more plug-in-and-play option alongside him in that, in that 1995 campaign. But also, I don't think Coulthard did a, a particularly bad job. Um, obviously, both cars had retirements that year and uh, Coulthard did have one more. But, you know, I think... I think the decision for Williams uh, was a, a difficult one. And I think youth over experience is, is definitely one way of putting it, isn't it? But I think money played a, a big factor in it as well. And the fact that Williams still had to to pay Mansell, according to uh, Mansell's book, you know, they still had to, to pay him that money, even though he'd, uh, he'd left the team, is a bit of a surprise. And I think, you know, it's, it's difficult to work out the finances you know all of the finances involved at this point because it, was, it all seems a bit cloak and dagger even looking back now and still having the benefit of uh, of Mansell's book and, and stuff like that as well so it's a uh, you know a bit of a just a bizarre situation um you know looking back at it in hindsight I think you know I think Coulthard did a good job and um it but but going back to actually you know making that decision in 1994 for me a bit of a surprise um and you know Williams saw what they were getting at the end of 1994 and you know I thought that you know, they would, the decision there would be to go with him in 1995 as well. Yeah, it looked like he'd done all all he could really to justify that seat. And you have to wonder, you know, the 95 Williams was a good car and it'd be very interesting to see what Mansell on form could have done with it. But not long after he loses that Williams opportunity, Ron Dennis calls him and suggests they get together for a chat. And Mansell says in his book that the meetings were a case of Ron motivating me, saying that McLaren would be capable of winning races and talking up the partnership with Mercedes. Word gets out quickly, as it, as it always does in Formula One, that Mansell's been visiting McLaren. And in the media, there's a lot of doubt being expressed by the journalists that, you know, is Mansell and McLaren really a compatible partnership? And Autosport pulls out a line from a year previously when Ron Dennis had said he can't work with drivers he doesn't understand and he said he's never understood Mansell. When the deal gets announced, Dennis says, 
we are very different characters and a lot of people were aware of the opinions I've expressed of Mansell in the past. He even says that um, the first meeting was, quote, nearly catastrophic and Mansell supports that as well. Uh, Mansell says negotiations over the deal began badly. It took several meetings before we both began to see that there was more to each other than we had thought. Once we started sharing our personal attitudes to racing, we found we had a lot in common. From then on, the dialogue was relatively smooth and we quickly arrived at a deal for 95. But Sam, Mansell and Ron Dennis, two huge characters of Formula One history. But it never felt like a good fit, did it? Do you think this relationship ultimately was cursed from the beginning? Two big characters, two big egos there, aren't there? I mean, the assumption is that they would they would clash. Um but actually, when you when you listen to Ron's words, and they did seem to get more of a relationship as they went on, you think uh, actually, you know, they did have quite a bit in common. They were they were both self made men. They were both quite abrasive characters. They knew what they wanted. So in in a professional sense, they they probably were similar. But you can often get too similar as well, can't you? So who knows where that went? I mean, they will have come across each other way back from nineteen eighty when they were both doing. Formula Two uh, mantle racing, and obviously Ron doing the Project Four stuff then. So they they will have known of each other for a long time. But was it doomed? I I would say that you know even with hindsight, you would say that it seemed to be working to some extent from a personal personal point of view. But you know fifty percent probably was just down to Mansell not having the appetite to go again in Formula One at the age of forty one and. And, you know, probably McLaren been in that turmoil and, and transition. So when those things met, it, it, it possibly was doomed, yes. And it's in early February that Mansell is officially unveiled as a McLaren driver with a press conference. And it is a one-year deal. Uh, Mansell says he wanted an option for a further two. But the agreement is that if 95 is going well, there'll be no reason to make a change and they'll extend it anyway. Ron makes a joke that it's a one-year deal to keep Mansell on his toes, which I imagine Nigel appreciated. And at the press conference, Mansell says, it's not a question of will we win this year, but when. With the might of Mercedes, the organisational prowess of McLaren, I'm feeling extremely confident. I've looked at the car, and if it works as well as it looks, it'll be fabulous. Now, that final comment is one we will come back to because he says something similar at the launch as well. And Dennis is quite open at the announcement and says Nigel has a degree of explosive nature about him and probably he'll lose control a couple of times, which is very counterproductive from an emotional standpoint. I expect it and it will be understandable because as with all teams, I think we're going to be on for the odd disappointment. Some curious quotes there from Ron, plenty of Ron speak as well. So, so many syllables per word. Mansell says, uh, looking back, that before the car had even launched, he realised... McLaren was starting to lose its way, technically, and he says, I had never understood why Ayrton Senna left McLaren at the end of 1993, but as my experience of them developed, I realised that he had left because he had seen that technically the team was in decline. It was tough for me to find all of this out the way I did. McLaren joined up with Mercedes for 95, which for what would become a very successful partnership, and in 94 as I'm sure we'll talk about in future episodes, they had the disastrous Peugeot-powered season and their first year uh, post-Senna. 94, though, was McLaren's first winless season since 1980. Jack, do you think by then we were already aware how far the McLaren star had fallen by this point? It's a difficult one, isn't it? I think uh, in in terms of your, the sort of literal sense of your question... Uh, you know, it's easy for us to look back in hindsight now and talk about the position that, that McLaren were in at that point. But at the time, I don't think people knew quite how bad the situation was. And that's quite often the, the case in Formula One and specifically around that time as well with so many rule changes going on, so many teams moving around. You know, every year there'd be a new car and, you know, quite often the top team stayed on top. But there was so much movement around that kind of midfield and, and the back of the grid, teams dropping out, things that we just don't get in, in modern Formula One anymore, you know. Um, you know, we look at how bad McLaren were in 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 2018 compared to how the how you know how good they were in in 2019. Um, you know, back then it was much more movable. You could uh, you know if you if you got everything right in in the off season, then you could come and be com- immediately competitive the next season. Where that's much more difficult to do now. But yeah, I think uh, at that point it was obviously a team uh, lacking direction. Whether that's 
you know, I don't think it's fair to specifically direct that at Ron Dennis. You know, I think the the operate. I think when we say lack of direction, there we're referring to all of the departments and everything pulling together in the right direction. But also, you know, four engine partners in four years. Um, you know, I think it was a massive misjudgment for for Ron and Nigel to be claiming that they were going to be fighting for a championship that year straight away. Because, you know, anyone who looks at the 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 kind of situation that they they had there on a piece of paper, you know, if you were to write for and against fighting for a championship, and you stack those up for and against for for McLaren in '95, I think any sane person looking back now would go, uh, that, that's going to be an against, and they're going to struggle to fight with uh, the likes of, of Benetton and Williams. So, you know, I think it's one of those things that you can get caught up in a bubble in Formula One, can't you? And the the current news can can sway you quite significantly and when Ron Dennis starts a season and says you know we're going to be fighting for a championship and he's just signed Nigel Mansell who's one of the most popular drivers in Formula One and he's also saying that they're going to fight for a championship and it's very easy to be drawn into that rhetoric and and to believe it as well and I think uh, I think that was probably a case of, of what happened with McLaren and as we saw over the next uh, couple of seasons really or at least including 95 and, and 96 that wasn't to be the case but it was the start of a you know something you know a lot more special for the team it just wasn't going to happen overnight it wasn't one of those um, you know sort of periods I discussed earlier where like you have a really good winter and you bring in some new people and there's a there's a new direction and you you sort of hit everything and, and you hit the ground running the next year it just wasn't to be for McLaren that year what do you think Sam were, were McLaren were McLaren in the doldrums by this point or was it clear that they were I'm not sure if it was absolutely clear and, and actually I'm going to slightly disagree with with Jack in terms of Ron's culpability in this because Recently, I watched the 1993 BBC documentary, A Season with McLaren, which I think which is one is of the... brilliant. It's a superb documentary, and if you haven't seen it, yeah, check it out on YouTube. Some remarkable scenes in it, and, and some of those are, 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 you know, of a McLaren-clad strutting peacock of Ron Dennis, um, basically just, you know, being, being, being Ron. <laughs> I mean, you can call it confidence, you can call it arrogance, whatever you want to call it. I mean, in 93... They were punching above their weight, obviously, with the the engine power that they had, and they had one of their major assets, of course, with Senna. I actually think Ron probably just generally underestimated what losing Senna meant uh, at the end of at the end of '93, and I think you know he went through those relationships, the brief one with Chrysler, the sort of testing phase, and then with Peugeot. Um, that's all well documented, but you know I think if if you walk the walk, if you walked the walk like Ron did with that strand of arrogance then you had to back it up at the end of the day when 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 you were in the doldrums and whether they knew it or not something tells me that that inherent confidence of Ron probably masked the fact that McLaren were were not in a great place and you know that we saw that borne out really in quite painful terms for them throughout 1995 and and, and let's not forget as well that it was really probably the Mansell episode which put a lot of questions in Marlborough's mind as well. And then Marlborough essentially left, I think, in early 96. It wasn't communicated until August, but it was done, I think, at the Spanish Grand Prix. But typical Ron, you know, he came back, he had a plan B with West and, and spiriting Newey away from, from Williams as well. But ultimately, I think, you know, as, as a figurehead of the company, as somebody of Ron's personality, then, then you know... Whether you know whether he would admit it now, something tells me he probably wouldn't. But you know he he has to take some some blame for those those fallow years for sure. The MP410, which is the car in question here, launches in the middle of February, and it's revealed with a new wing attached to the top of the engine cover. Uh, for those of you that haven't seen it, consider it a more offensive looking version of the T wings we saw in F1 a few years ago. But Ron is very proud of the design, as you can imagine. He dismisses any doubts about its legality. And at launch, he says, The regulations are very clear. I don't think there is any greyness about that area. To optimise such a small aerodynamic device, you have to get it in the absolute perfect position. What we've tried to do is not just conform to the regulations, but also develop a car that explores to the full what's left within them. What you are seeing is one of the many, many variants we developed. And Mansell at the launch says once again, if it goes as quick as it looks, then everybody had better watch out. I said we'd come back to that comment because he mentioned it before the car was launched as well. Uh, Sam, you know, if it goes as quick as it looks, I think it did go as quick as it looks because it looked horrible. <laughs> so, I tend to agree. And, and somebody else who actually <laughs> agreed with that is, is a guy called Colin Morgan, who I, I've known for many years, but he was one of the mechanics who worked on Mansell seat fittings, actually. And uh, 
he had some pretty pretty sharp opinions actually about the whole disaster that um, unfolded but one of the things that stuck out in my mind was that he described the car as a complete pig in terms of how it looked and, and how it performed so there's no shine away from the fact that people actually working on it didn't have the um the greatest opinion of the of the aesthetics of the car and you know as, as as murray walker would say it was a masterpiece of understatement when it came to uh you know when it came to sort of summarizing the, the way that it looked it was angular it just it just looks wrong on every kind of level every angle and it you know it kind of gave off this i suppose slightly psychotic character in the in the way that it handled as well it had major pitch sensitivity issues it it just didn't it just wouldn't drive from the front and and that's something which you know mansell whatever his motivation was just just couldn't deal with and i suppose as well you've got to stack it up against some of the really attractive cars that mclaren did i mean the the mp49 i thought in in 94 which was you know the 10 was essentially a carryover from from many components you know, it was a reasonably good-looking car. The '93 car was was pretty pretty tasty as well. You know, I I, I think it just the '95 car just suffered a bit because the ugly the ugly duckling sort of came from that swan that lineage of of swans, I guess. I think I think ultimately in '95 a lot of cars aesthetically went up against uh, Barnard's Ferrari, didn't they? And there was there was no chance of ever coming away with anything other than a than a, a bad reflection when you stacked up against that because it was just a, a gorgeous car, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, on all fronts, it, it it just wasn't a good proposition at all. What do you think, Jack? You know, we can look back at as Sam mentioned there some some gorgeous nineteen nineties cars, especially in the the early part and the middle of the decade, but this was not one of them. It wasn't a particularly good-looking car. I, I do have a, a little bit of a thing for, for the cars that push the boundaries, and even if they don't get it right, like the Eiffel and Type 21, for example, that, that weird wing on the centre of the front, uh, I think it's just maybe because I'm a bit of a deviant. But, uh, you know, I, I don't think the 95 car is as bad as some people, uh, you know. Uh, you know, I think pigs are pretty harsh. But, yeah, I don't think it's, uh, it's definitely... Uh, not of the ilk of the Barnard Ferrari for sure. Sam's definitely right on that one. And um, no matter how, how you look at the sort of extra wing and the the extra sort of uh, aero that they tried to put on that car, uh, it definitely wasn't the best looking car on the grid. And it definitely behaved as much. Mansell was was bang on. There's not many quotes I think um, that you can look back on that year where you think I'm getting the whole truth and, and nothing but the truth for this. Nothing but the truth with this story, but that was definitely one of them. That Mansell said the car was going to be as good as uh, it was going to go, as good as it looked, and uh, I think that was probably probably the case, really. Yeah, I mean, they, they, you know, they've always said, haven't they, that an ugly car can become good looking if it's fast. Um, but there was none of that with this one. And at the first test, it becomes clear very quickly that this is a bad car. Um, Mansell says it was dreadful from the first time he drove it, and it quickly became apparent to him that there was going to be no world championship challenge in 95 but he explained in really good detail as you hinted at sam why this car was particularly incompatible with his driving style and he said i need a car with which i can go deeply on the brakes and when i turn the steering wheel it will, re it will react immediately and go where i point it sadly the mclaren couldn't do this at all i couldn't trust the car and i certainly couldn't drive it on the limit if i tried to go 10 tenths the chances of having an accident were very high it was more sympathetic to drivers who like understeer and who, once they turn the steering wheel, allow the car plenty of time to turn. Everything I was asking from the car, it wasn't able to deliver. You know straight away when you're in a bad car. And the media latches on to the MP410 being a bad car very quickly. It's reported that it's an aerodynamic problem, so everyone's focusing on that mid-wing, you know, the big engine cover. And rumours start then that they're going to get rid of it for the first race in Brazil. But actually, they raced with it until mid-season uh, before they ran a conventional engine cover. Mansell, recalling that test, because he didn't talk at the time, says that he went off on his first lap because the car just jumped and swapped ends on him for no reason. And he came back to the pits and told the team it must have been his mistake. But he went back out again, and in his words, the car was all over the place. And his explanation was, sometimes the front end would have maximum grip and the rear would have no grip. Then suddenly it would be the other way around. You had a massive swing from understeer to oversteer in the middle of the corner. Clearly the car was highly unbalanced aerodynamically and that showed on the stopwatch. I was hugely disappointed by that first test and I could see already it was going to be a long uphill battle. 
Now, even today, Jack, we go to F1 tests, the new cars run for the first time, and the drivers always tell us it's too early to tell if they've got a good car or not. Then they retire from driving, and if you talk to them and you ask for an honest answer, they'll say they can tell usually within, what, five to ten laps. So can we say that Mansell's not just looking back with hindsight, it's ut utterly believable that he would have driven this car and been able to tell immediately that it was a bit of a dog? Yeah, I think I think he probably could. You know, he probably could tell uh, pretty quickly that that the car wasn't where it needed to be, especially as the whole rhetoric, as we've already discussed, was that they were going to fight for the championship this year. And I think, having driven the Williams so so soon before that, I think you know he, he must have had a good idea, good idea that that car wasn't going to be where it needed to be. But for me, it just shows, uh, you know, also from from Mansell, it just shows a complete lack of adaptation, because you know, as I'm sure we'll go on to talk about, you know, a lot of the the blame Mansell rested on where McLaren was as an organisation and where it was with its, uh, you know, its development team and, and stuff like that. But you know, there's there's no acceptance from from Mansell that he needs to adapt his driving style to how this car performs. It's all, uh, you know, this doesn't suit the way I like to drive the car. Um, and uh, you know, I think he, I think he does recall in his book that, you know, he kind of admits that Hakkinen had a bit more. You know, well, he he states that Hakkinen had a bit more time to to adapt his style to the car. But for me, there's, you know, I've not seen any point in, in Mansell's book or, or heard him at any point say, you know, uh, you know, this is my style. It's not really suited to this car and I need to adapt to get the best out of the car. It's all geared towards McLaren haven't given me the car I need. It's not the style I want. Everything's not where I need it to be to perform and therefore the car's rubbish. You know, it's, it, for me, it says a lot about Mansell's approach to the year based on just some of the things that he recalls in his book there about, you know, how he went about the season because, you know, Hakkinen, as a, again, I'm sure we'll, we'll go on to discuss. You know, Hakkinen didn't have a stellar season in the car, but did manage to get some results out of the car. And you know, I think for me, it does. It, it says a lot about Mansell's approach to the season. You know, how he how he reflects on that test. And it, and it gets worse for McLaren very quickly because Mansell says that not only did they realise they had a bad car, but they had no idea how to fix it. And he says, I knew the chances of us rectifying the problems in the short term were remote. What I found to my dismay was that some of the people in McLaren hadn't got a clue about what to do about the problems. This is what really knocked my confidence in the McLaren organisation. They didn't have a quick fix, and although the will was there, the savvy to get it done quickly and properly was not. I could see that until they put some new blood into the team and new direction into the design department, they would be in trouble for some time to come. Now, Sam, we know that not long after this, McLaren would solve those design problems by hiring Adrian Newey. That's a that's a pretty good fix if you can get your hands on him. And they um, they did start winning races, or they won a race just before he joined uh, in the middle of '97. But do we think Mansell's appreciation of where McLaren was technically at this point was fair? I mean, this is a bad car. But was McLaren perhaps as bad behind the scenes as he's making out? Because they started to turn it around in '96, didn't they? Yeah, I, I think the, the foundations were, were pretty solid. I mean, we're talking about guys like Neil Oatley, Henri Durand here, who who were, were proven as, as designers, and, and Durand was the aerodynamicist. Um, you know, they also had, don't forget, Mario Illion and, and Paul Morgan on the uh, on the engineering side as well. So that they had the right people there. And obviously, whether, you know, whether Adrian Newey came and uh, just just formed that to his own accord it, you know that that's kind of likely that that took place but i think it's you know i think mansell in his book is probably overly harsh i mean you know mansell had a track record in trying to find uh excuses that that really didn't revolve around him i mean he, he, he that was just the character that he was i think from when you look at what mclaren tried to do in 95 they they tried pretty much everything they had i think they had a b and a c version of the car multiple specs there was a major engine upgrade at silverstone that they brought that admittedly they had two engine failures at hockenheim but it, it's easy to forget that this was mercedes first year in formula 1 and actually mclaren only got the the architecture or the um or the parameters of the dimensions of the engine in late October ninety four, which is it's a pretty short time frame to get everything up and running uh to that extent. So, you know, I think I think in terms of 
the technical team they had a good committee there they probably just needed a, a leader you know they'd, they'd had obviously they'd had Gordon Murray John Barnard Gordon Murray Steve Nichols and then there was this period where it was more of a committee and and who knows to what extent that that played a part in these in these difficult years for them but uh, you know I think ultimately McLaren was probably geared up and structured to have a leader uh, not not a dictator a leader and i think that's what we saw from from 97 onwards when newey joined well, we've managed to get this far into a discussion about mansell and mclaren without talking about the most memorable detail of the story which is that he didn't really fit in the car now, this story breaks in march of 1995 so just on the eve of the season and in fairness the car wasn't designed with mansell's size in mind and it was too tight for him around the hips and the elbows and his driving style relied a lot on upper body strength for kind of elbows out style where you're, you're driving through your shoulders, that kind of thing. And Mansell says he was so uncomfortable that he couldn't do more than three or four laps at a time. And in response that, to rumours that he was unable to drive it because he was disillusioned about how bad the car was, he tells McLaren and Mercedes that even if the car was competitive, he'd not be able to drive it. Now, obviously, over time, we've been able to look back on this one and make jokes about Mansell just being too chunky for the car. But driver comfort was an issue up and down the grid in 95 due to new regulations that were coming in. New levels of clearance were required between the steering wheel and the edge of the cockpit uh, around the driver's hands, that sort of area. So that pushed the wheel back towards the driver. And the chassis was no longer allowed to flare out below the cockpit opening to give drivers more room. McLaren had to make adjustments for Hakkinen to fit in it, but there wasn't enough room for those adjustments to help Mansell, who had a bigger frame. And even at Ferrari, it emerged that they'd been cutting out parts of the driver's seats around the sides to give them more room. As I mentioned, Mansell didn't talk to the media at that first test, which I think if you were in the media pack at the time, that would tell you everything you needed to know. Hakkinen spoke to the press and he said, Driving this car is like running the London Marathon in a pair of shoes that are too small. Mansell has suffered from bruising on his hands and arms, and if it is bad for me, it must be much worse for him. BBC News jump on this, and they do a report where they ask McLaren, why has this issue only just come to light? And the team defends itself by saying that in seat fittings, and I think, Sam, you can tell us a bit more about this in a bit, but Mansell seemed to have enough room when he was sat in a static car in the factory, and it only became clear how compromised he was once he started driving it. It's then announced that Mansell will miss the first two races so McLaren can build a bigger chassis. And Mansell says it was a joint decision, and actually, in retrospect, he has praised Ron for the way Ron kind of took the embarrassment on the chin. And when he got to Brazil, Dennis said, this is our problem, not Nigel's, and before you can expect a driver to give you good results, you have to make sure he's comfortable in the car. Now, Mansell was replaced for those first couple of races by Mark Blundell. And Mark very recently did a, an official F1 podcast interview with Tom Clarkson, Beyond the Grid. You should check it out. He talked a lot about his time at McLaren, but didn't necessarily talk about what was going on at the start of the year when he got called up to fill in for Nigel. So, Sam, you got hold of Mark and you had a chat about that period of his time at McLaren. So let's listen to what Mark told you and then we'll come back to this story. Well, that stage i had no understanding or vision uh, in what was going to happen there and um you know and i think to be fair most of the people involved at that level at mclaren didn't have any understanding what was going to roll out either because you know if you looked on paper it, it kind of looked like the dream team and w when you heard about Nigel's issues, it was was it a certainty you were going to get in there? Do you remember the conversation you had with with Ron Mark about uh, just prior to Interlagos when you headed out there with Mika? Well, it is actually um, it's Martin Whitmarsh who gave me a, uh, the call, um, and and it was a weekend actually, uh, uh, and I was told to go to the factory. It was on a Sunday and get myself into a car and get a seat fit done. And I thought, well, this is all a little bit strange. But, um, you know, I didn't really kind of like think anything of it because, you know, F1 never stops. It's kind of 24-7 and you just get on and do what you're doing, you know. Um, but I was like told to also park my car around the back because uh, nobody wanted me to sort of parking around the front entrance. 
So I also thought that was slightly strange as well. <laughs> Maybe it was a bit re- uh, revealing because I've got like a private plate on my car, which made it a bit obvious. But it was a little bit bizarre because I actually bumped into uh, into Nigel in the corridor in a factory, which I don't think was supposed to have happened. I don't think that was uh, the ideal plan. But um, anyway, lo and behold, I think that was maybe the day that he was informed that things were going to be uh, not going any further forward in the immediate future. Um, and I was being shoehorned in the car to uh, to take the, the seat. When you think of McLaren and Mansell as a partnership, it's not one that sort of sits uh, comfortably, is it? it? It was almost destined not to work in a way. Is, is that sort of fair to say? It, it didn't make a lot of sense to me when they signed him. Um, because I just didn't see that the the personalities there were ever going to sort of gel. In saying that, you know, personalities in Formula One don't really come into it in many ways because it's all about delivery and it's all about getting the job done. And I think everyone perseveres and just gets their head down because if they're getting results, then, um, you know, they grind it out. But uh, it, it's, uh, it was a lot of razzmatazz and a lot of fanfare. Um, and as I say, on paper, it looked very much like the dream team. But, you know, consequently, we had a situation where, I think in McLaren's history up to that date, it's probably one of the worst cards that ever been taken off the drawing board. I mean, you did um, you did that first race, Mark, and, and got a point uh, on the car's debut. And then Nigel came in for those two sort of cameo performances, which, which uh, didn't work out. Just give us a feel for the car itself. Cars back then, I don't think people really appreciate how tight ergonomically the cars were back then. I mean, did this, when you first sat in it, did you think it was tighter than previous uh, cockpits that you'd raced in? I think if you actually look back, um, a couple of areas. So one, you know, although I was in good shape, I was always one of the heavier drivers because it's just my, you know, my natural sort of... uh, bone structure is what it is, you know, and, and, and also for, a, for an F1 driver, I've, I've always quite uh, big shoulders, you know, so it was always a little bit of a, a tight fit for me anyway, whatever race car I drove in, especially a single seater. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, and I remember always looking at the scales and stuff, and I think Nigel was up there on that side of things, and Nigel was, a, was you know, as F1 drivers go, was also uh, one of the bigger set guys as well. Um, I think, you know, it's just differences in maybe style of driving, differences in in the way that you feel comfortable and confident. And and I don't think that that cockpit and that car just suited him. That's you know that's where I got to in in my assessment of it. Um, and I think also at the end of the day, you know, you got to understand that we were at different stages of career. You know, it, you know this this is a world champion that was sitting in there and needed things that he felt were right for him and a guy that was in my shoes that was quite prepared to go and do what they had to do, whatever the case may be. So, yeah. um, and I know also from the, my Williams days, I mean, you know, Nigel, for example, would, you know, you drive with a, a steering wheel that was you know, far smaller than, than anybody else. Um, but he had the physical strength to actually turn the wheel and, you know, take that for a Grand Prix distance. And, uh, you know, get out the other end, and you know, even you know, I'm not weak in that department, but I don't think even I could have managed to have done what he did. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> I, I don't know. I, I, I never really, you know, and again, just being open, I never really delved too much into the politics of it, the reasoning behind it, and and actually fundamentally didn't really concern myself with it. I don't know what his expectations were. I don't know what was positioned and promised for him you know and maybe those things didn't align I have no idea whatsoever but you know as I say for me I didn't really even consider or think about it because I only looked at it in the way that right there's my platform now I need to go and do what I need to do so Mansell said previously that even if the car was competitive, he couldn't have fit in it. Now, Sam, you've written a specific feature all about this whole saga of him not being able to fit into the car. So two things, really. Do you believe that Mansell would have refused to drive it if it was really quick? 
And as we mentioned with the BBC report earlier, how can McLaren get to the eve of the season before realising their star driver doesn't fit in their tub? Yeah, I mean, it was, um, you know, another angle of this whole mess, wasn't it? The fact that they'd done the seat fitting and, and Mansell seemed to be, I mean, he was snug in the cockpit, that's for sure. Uh, for those who don't know, the, the seats are, are made for individual drivers using two-part foam. And once once the seat had set and been trimmed, Mansell, uh, th- these are the words of Colin Morgan, the um, the mechanic who was working on that car and for the team that season. And he said that at the seat fitting, although it was tight, there was no, um, there was no protestation from Mansell about how he could drive the car and then he did the test and obviously with the forces involved and with the uh, the loadings it became increasingly difficult for him to actually get the lock on the car when he was um you know when the when when the lack of front grip was kicking in as it did lap by lap seemingly in that car but yeah i mean you know could he have driven it if it was a quicker car it's it's a complex one don't forget as i sort of touched on that you know, that Mansell just didn't seem to want to go again. One of the telling things that Colin said, actually, was that when he came through the factory doors for the first time, his just overall demeanour was very dour. He looked demotivated. It was as if he didn't want to be there and McLaren didn't want to be, didn't want him to be there either. There wasn't much love on either side. Um, obviously, there were third parties involved in getting him into the team, which was probably, oh, as is known now, Marlborough and a little bit of Bernie as well. Don't forget that Formula One in a post-Senna and post-Prost world needed champions and, and Mansell was a reigning champion. So, But but I think the desire just wasn't there, to be honest. He, he didn't have the motivation to do it, which is why I think he, he just didn't get any sympathy from the mechanics as well. He, you know, the, I think the, the curiosity about Mansell was that for all his brio and bulldog spirit, which was undoubtedly there, we've we've seen the evidence. You know, Mexico ninety, um, Hungary eighty nine. Those those glory or that glory year with Ferrari. But then there's the flip side, isn't there? There is the side where Mansell just gave up. I mean, for all the uh, the, the tropes of Mansell, people seem to conveniently forget that in nineteen ninety he actually parked healthy cars twice, once at Hockenheim and once at Spa. Uh, you know, he alluded to damaged cars or what have you, but ultimately the team said that he could have continued. So, I don't know. It's, I mean, Schumacher in 2010, you could say, was a similar scenario. Some different circumstances, obviously. Similar ages. Um, Schumacher, a six-time champion. Mansell was a champion as well. They were there. Well, Schumacher was there to build a team up. He did that. Mansell just didn't have the wherewithal or the motivation to do that and ultimately that told you know whether it was a competitive car or not uh, the fact is that Mansell just didn't have the 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 inclination to to dig in and, and and do what he was oddly you know what he was noted for which was for being a fighter yeah and you've got to think that he just he couldn't get over the sort of disillusionment of losing out on the Williams drive what do you reckon Jack do you think if the McLaren was rapid in testing he'd have put up with the bumps and bruises it's a difficult one, isn't it? I think the I think Sam's covered the point very nicely there. To be honest, that the the, the motivation is the the key factor in in everything here. And uh, even if the car was semi competitive, you know, would Nigel have found another way to to wriggle out of this one, or you know, to to to, to find a way to become disillusioned with it because that was just the point he was at in in this deal. I mean, it's a difficult one. Uh, it's there's obviously you know talk about the you know, the contract extension and stuff like that, that he could have been there for, for an extra two years and stuff like that. So when these talks are going on, there was obviously some thought about the future and, and looking to build something here. But, uh, you know, I think there's, uh, looking back, it's you, you can only assume that there was a point where Mansell became so disillusioned with the performance of the car that he'd been given. Um, and it was clear that he expected to fight for a championship and, and prove Williams wrong for, for not picking him up for that year. And, and obviously that wasn't going to be the case. So I think there must have been a point where Mansell, you know, had decided that, you know, that wasn't going to happen and that the, the situation wasn't tenable for him because he wasn't being given what he was told that he was going to be given, which was a, you know, a championship winning car or the opportunity to win a championship. And his assessment of the, the team at that point, um, you know, shows that Mansell didn't believe that McLaren were ready to turn that round anytime soon. So, obviously, Mansell couldn't have seen that that Adrian knew he was going to come in and, and and do so much good work with with that team in the future. But at that point, you know, 
Mansell would have been <laughs> pretty old at that point and uh, you know probably not the, the the right person to be leading the team at that point as a driver so it's um, you know as is the case with this hindsight's a beautiful thing where you can drop yourself into particular points in time and, and try and work out exactly what was going on but you know I think I think Mansell did approach this and convinced himself that this was a, a good deal for him and that he could fight for the championship and that McLaren was going to be a good move and I think after that first test I think he found out very quickly that the, the car wasn't where it needed to be the team wasn't to his liking and that he was going to have to do a lot of it, adapting to that situation that he wasn't really willing to do at that point in his career. Hindsight's a wonderful thing that's one of the rejected names for this podcast I think Blundell and Hakkinen, um, the car's off the pace, but they managed to score points at the start of the season. But even Blundell reports uh, bruising on his elbows and wrists. So as he mentioned in that little clip with Sam, it was a tight squeeze for him as well. The bigger car is ready for, for Imola round three. And Dennis is promising to wipe the smiles off the faces of those who have enjoyed the team starting the year on the back foot. Mansell won't get to drive the car for the first time until practice. He does over 100 laps in a test with the original chassis at Silverstone, but you can only drive it because the team have removed some side impact panels from the cockpit, so the car couldn't legally race in that state. Ron then jokes that the new car has enough room for a stereo, and Mansell plays down his chances of being on the pace immediately. And recalling it in his book, he says when he drove the, the bigger car for the first time, he was dismayed. Uh, how it felt, because aside from having more room, it had all the same handling problems of the original. He qualified ninth and finished tenth, two laps down, and he said, we were not competing, we were just making the numbers up. There was no way this package could be considered a challenger for the championship. Now, Sam, is that a bit naive of Mansell to think that he was going to get the bigger car, but it was also going to solve all of the other handling problems? You know, if anything, the time they had to spend making a bigger monocoque for him was time that couldn't be spent solving the aero problems correct yeah I mean, you know people forget that the teams formula one teams were an awful lot smaller in those days as well it was probably probably around 300 i think which is you know a third of some of the bigger teams now almost so you know i think it was inevitable they would be a little a little stretched in ascertaining and then fighting the issues and and then the development afterwards so the the delays plainly did affect things but the facts are that McLaren were probably the best equipped team to try and claw that back as well so th th there is a little bit of a little tiny little bit of sympathy for Mansell in that in that respect and you know Ron Dennis had Ron Dennis had really promoted this aura of McLaren being able to to achieve almost anything as well so it was quite a long way to to fall in a way um don't forget that this was before a lot of simulator work was was proficient in Formula One. Um, they did a lot of real life testing, yes, but that takes a lot more time for for rapid prototyping and and you know there weren't advanced vehicle dynamic test rigs back then with sophisticated seven post track relays and and all these things that we that Formula One teams kind of take for granted these days to to make some sweeping changes. But I think I think probably as well uh, from a human resources point of view, they probably didn't. Uh, use Blundell enough, you know, uh, or rather Ron maybe didn't manage him properly, should I say. I think, you know, this is the guy who did a lot of testing for Williams. It was a highly prized test driver for them and then McLaren also in 92. So actually, you know, not giving him a, a pretty paltry race-by-race -race deal on test driver money might not have been the smartest thing for, you know, a, an esteemed manager like Ron Dennis to do perhaps. Yeah, let's move on to the Spanish Grand Prix because that's where this story comes to a head. Mansell qualifies only a tenth behind Hakkinen, but they're sharing the fifth row of the grid and Dennis calls the team's performance inadequate. And Hakkinen had been between a second and 1.3 seconds off the pace at the first three races, but in Spain he's 2.3 seconds off Michael Schumacher, who's on pole. And Dennis says the long sweeping nature of the corners at Barcelona highlighted the weaknesses of the MP410. And in the race, after 18 laps, Mansell parks the car, declaring it undrivable. And all Ron said at the time was uh, that Mansell chose not to continue. And Mansell was aware at the time that the team didn't agree with his decision to stop. Now, Mansell said, at the time he said he had problems with the car's balance from the start of the race, saying it was oversteering a lot to begin with, then understeering. But at that point, it was drivable. Then a couple of laps after his first pit stop, it was understeering so much that it became impossible to drive in the faster corners. 
In his book, he looked back on this saying, you can't go storming into a corner, then have nothing happen when you turn the wheel. I made a lot of alterations to the car, but they didn't make it any better. They merely delayed one problem and created another. I was fighting the car all the way around, and I was lucky if, and I, if I was lucky, I might be able to get tenth on the grid, and that would be a good result. I couldn't believe that things were so bad. And he continues, when you're driving a car that isn't working and you drive it into a corner and it understeers straight off the track heading for a brick wall, uh, answers on a postcard if you can tell us where the brick walls are at the circuit Barcelona, <laughs> Catalonia, and nothing you do makes any difference, then that's pretty stupid. I'm not going to drive any car, no matter how illustrious the team is, that is downright dangerous. Sitting in the cockpit, I had no idea what was wrong with it whether the front wing was broken, whether there was something wrong with the front suspension, or if I'd picked up debris underneath the car. I knew that it didn't feel correct, and so I had to retire it. Anybody who criticises a driver for using his intelligence and retiring an undrivable car is being unreasonable. So, Sam, would you care to be unreasonable and comment on that? <laughs> I'm surprised that Ron Dennis didn't pulp all those books when it came out. Um... Yeah, I think some context, really. I think if someone's commanding seven to eight million pounds back in 1995 as a pay packet, and yes, they're a world champion, at the very least, they need to dig in and they need to start supporting the team. They need, they need to start leading the team. I mean, Mantle never even came close to, to doing that. Ultimately, it was if anyone did, it was it was Mika Hakkinen and, and, and Mark Blundell. And I, I'm pretty sure, well, I know that the, the mechanics attest to that because we, we spoke to Colin Morgan, as we said, and, and that's very much his opinion as well. But, you know, I think the motivation question comes back again. You know, he, at Barcelona, he was at one stage after his pit stop, he was he was fighting for 15th place with Domenico Ciattarella, if I've pronounced that right, which I probably haven't, um, which, you know, in a Simtac, can you imagine the frame of mind that, that a driver of Mansell's um confidence and and um and standing that that put him in i mean it must have been difficult of course it was but again coming back to it he was the he was the star driver and he was part of his remit was to to drive that team and use his experience i mean to, uh, again from the uh, a mechanics um anecdote about that uh, he was moaning on the radio for most of that race and it was an open channel at that time and the, actually, the radio um, protocol of McLaren changed after that race because of Mansell's persistent uh, moaning. In the words of um, in words of the mechanics, I mean, you know that that just isn't befitting of a world champion, really, is it? And and you can imagine the the thoughts of the mechanics who you know will have been working in uh, twenty hour days to to get this car ready for him and and, and re redoing and relaminating a new a new cockpit and so forth. So ultimately it just you know it was all brought to a head and, and it was probably just a mercy for both parties that that it ended the way it did unfortunately. I think Mansell's career is uh you know I think you have to look back as well to understand how we got to this point as well because he spent so long being that working class hero who was fighting against the odds and, and fighting against every car he had to make it competitive. You know, we all have this image of of Mansell being, you know, like, uh, you know, a proper working class hero who would drag the car around the track, even if it wasn't competitive, to make sure he was getting the result. And he was going to be beat his teammate and he was going to he was going to do everything he could to finally win that that Formula One World Championship that, he, that he'd wanted for so long. And, and once he got it, everything sort of fell perfectly into place for him. 92, everything was absolute, couldn't have been a more perfect situation for him. 93, he went to America and people asked him why he was doing it and he, he dominated out there and, and, and won that championship. Everything had gone so well for Mansell for, for a few years. And I think coming into this McLaren situation, he'd been sold on on Dennis, saying that the, the car was going to be immediately competitive and this was his, going to be his chance to put another one over on Williams and say... Um, you know, you should have chose me for 95, but you didn't, and I'm going to beat you in a McLaren instead. The ultimate sort of, you know, the ultimate fingers up, if you like. And, it, you know, obviously immediately it was clear that that wasn't going to happen. And I think that that led to the the, the massive swing of, of Mansell's mood from the whole, you know, we're going to fight for the championship to this massive amount of demotivation that was seen by people within McLaren, you know, pretty much as, uh, you know, as soon as that first test had happened. Yeah, and by this point, Mansell is being affected by what's going on and he admitted afterwards that he was doing some soul-searching after that Spanish Grand Prix because he was aware... 
people were saying he'd given up and was just there for the money. And he says, yes, the contract was very lucrative, but he didn't want to be known as a, a journeyman driver just hanging around to be paid millions of pounds to drive at the bottom half of the top 10. So after Spain, he said he had to look himself in the mirror and ask if he was prepared to drive this car on a knife edge. And as you mentioned there, Jack, you know, things had gone pretty well over the previous couple of years, but he said he'd given up that life in America and his IndyCar contract to come back to F1 with Williams, not McLaren. And he'd come back because he thought it was a foregone conclusion he'd get that Williams drive. But now here he was driving a McLaren that wasn't very good and was going to take a while to sort. And in fairness, you know, in the first five races of the year, McLaren were on average 1.5 seconds off pole. In the final five races of the year, they were 1.7 off pole on average. So they didn't, as much as they did to this car, they didn't make it that much better. And after the Spanish Grand Prix, Mansell and Dennis have a meeting and it's agreed at Nigel's request that he should stand down. He says the parting was amicable and both sides regretted how badly it had turned out. When McLaren announced the news, Dennis says the MP410 has not met the expectations of both parties Mansell has not felt confident with the car, which has affected his ability to commit fully to the programme. Ron does praise Nigel for being entirely straightforward and totally professional in his business conduct, which is definitely a real Ron Dennis quote. Mansell says in that announcement he expected on joining McLaren that the total package would have given me the possibility to be competitive with the other top teams. He does say that McLaren is undoubtedly building a future which I'm sure will be successful in the long term. And with that, he was right, because in 98, they win the championship. And Ron says uh, to the media, I think this is when they get to Monaco, maybe. Unless you can give 100% all of the time, irrespective of any set of circumstances, then you are not being a team player and not being honest with yourself. And he said that that came up in discussions with Mansell and led to both sides agreeing it was best to stop the relationship. Bernie Eccleston chimes in. Sam, you mentioned that Bernie probably played a part in the deal coming together in the first place and he said that he's surprised Mansell gave up so easily and he puts it down to personal differences between Mansell and Dennis which they both denied and he says there's but he also said there was nothing good about having Mansell back in F1 this time around because he wasn't his usual self we've talked about Mansell's motivation Jack and, and his demeanor came up a lot in coverage at the time there were a couple of theories saying that either he was too relaxed uh, or he just wasn't taking it seriously enough. But Frank Williams had a theory that Mansell had mellowed while living in America and that Williams had noticed this in 94. So do you think Mansell was mellow or are we going to stick to our theory that you've both mentioned that, you know, the fire had gone out by this point? I think I think there's an element of, of mellowing out. And I think part of that comes down to to you know finally winning that championship in in 92 and then and then taking America by storm as well and um you know so much of of what drove Nigel before 92 was trying to win that championship and you know it was a uh, an obsession almost for for Mansell to win that championship and once he had won it I think it was only natural that it was going to be a certain element of of mellowing out and you know with with uh, some drivers there needs to be a kind of recalibration of of what's next you know some drivers naturally go on to right I've won one championship time to win the next one I'm going to win seven I'm going to win eight with some drivers it's a bit more difficult because they spend so long trying to 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 reach that one goal and when they do reach it it's a little bit of a uh, sometimes it takes some inward reflection to work out what to do next and, and how to go about that and obviously Mansell's approach was to go to a different country and take on a different championship so that was a massive recalibration for, for Mansell in that sense. He, he didn't go about it in the normal way as most drivers probably would have, uh, you know, staying with the same team and, and going for the championship again. Obviously, that wasn't an option. But, um, you know, I think there was definitely an, an element of him mellowing out because of that title success and then having such an easy life in America, um, you know, in terms of the lifestyle out there and, and how the IndyCar circus kind of worked at that point. But I still think there was a... You know, I still think the motivation issue is is you know what we've discussed previously is the overriding factor here, and um, you know we'll, I'm sure we'll go and talk about the the eventual parting of ways. Uh, but I think the you know the motivation factor is a big one. But also, I, I do kind of I can't help but feel a little bit sorry for him in in a certain sense. I mean, he did need to step up and lead that team. He did need to do such a you know so much a, a better job of adapting to that car. 
and dragging it around the track like we become so familiar of of of, of seeing Nigel do. But at the same time, uh, you know, maybe it was him being naive for sort of buying into that talk of, of Dennis wanting to win the championship that year and, and thinking the car was going to be there. But you can't, you, you can't, I can't help but feel like he was sold a bit of a, a limp duck at that point. And um, it, you know, it was a, another one of. Nigel's unlucky transfer moves that we've seen over his career but uh, yeah I think in answer to the question I think there was an element of mellowing out because of those successes that he'd had in the previous years but at the same time um, I don't think that motivation was there like it had been previously before those well before that championship success I I think actually when when you look back at Mansell's 94 kart season and 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 I recall speaking some of the Lola engineers that were working with him at, at Newman Haas that season, I think there are signs that the fire had gone out after he'd won that title um, in '93. But then the you know the great um, the great contradiction of Mansell comes back, doesn't it? Because he has this really uh, desperate season in '94, and by all accounts, uh, as the engineers attested, gave up really during that season. Um, but then the great contradiction comes on board when he does those cameo performances with Williams, and I think it was Magni Cor. Hereth and Suzuka in Adelaide, wasn't it? And he had that terrific battle with Alacy at, at Suzuka, and then gets the pole at Adelaide, beating you know beating the championship protagonist. So he was just a seesaw of everything, and it depended on which which way it came down. And and in '95, it he I think only he just decided that you know this this is not something I want to be a part of, and uh, the demotivation told in the end. Yeah. Now, Ron Dennis, as I said, he and Mansell denied that there was any problem with the personal relationship. And Ron, when he was asked about that, said uh, the relationship was much better than I could have hoped for. We had no problems and it had no relevance to the decision both sides took to cease the relationship. I could read out Ron Dennis quotes all day. They're absolutely brilliant. But the announcement at the time seemed to leave the door open for Mansell to potentially come back. And when Ron was asked about that, he said it wasn't accidental wording in the press release, and that prompts some speculation that Mansell could return, perhaps even for the British Grand Prix, but nothing comes of it, and Ron says, oh, if he would come back, maybe it'd be for 96, but we know that David Coulthard's coming in then. So the Spanish Grand Prix is Nigel Mansell's final appearance in F1. Now, it's been said many times that if he'd bowed out after that win in Australia for Williams, that'd have been the perfect way to end the career, and it's such a shame that he tacked on these two rubbish appearances with McLaren, but Jack and Sam, based on everything we've been through there, you can both chime in on this one. We'll start with you, Sam. Looking at how it went over the short period McLaren and Mansell were together, was it the right decision to just cut all the ties and end the relationship when they did? Absolutely, 100% sure about that. And I think both parties were would probably concur now, what, 20, 25 years on. I think I think the fact that it was based in, you know, non-sporting attractions i.e. that it was a it was a showbiz deal wasn't it it was marlborough and bernie placing mansell with mclaren in this kind of audacious and going back to the start surreal partnership and i I just think there seemed to be even though it was difficult for mclaren from a team perspective having spoken to some of the team members it was just a relief the sense was relief that this had stopped both for Mansell because he plainly didn't want to be there really and for McLaren because it, it just didn't fit it was it was proper um square peg round hole stuff and there was no way in hell that that thing was going to work and I think just cutting their losses it, it cost McLaren a or maybe Marlborough a quite a bit of money but um I, I think for everybody it was just a, an enormous relief in the end yeah, definitely think that was the the right move. Couldn't agree more with you with that. So 100% is definitely the right number there. I think, you know, initially McLaren should have gone with a, a younger, more motivated driver, maybe someone like Blundell or at least someone sort of in the at, at that midpoint of their career where they had a bit of experience leading a team and, and developing a car. And... Or kept Martin Brundle. Yeah, or kept Martin Brundle. That might have been a sensible option as well, Glenn. I didn't know that one was on the table. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think we can do whatever we want here. It's fine. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. I like that. We can, uh, yeah, we can have some fun with this one then. Um, but yeah, I think you know I've spoken to to Gary Anderson about this on on numerous occasions, and he loved working with younger drivers in in developing cars. Obviously, the 
the experience element isn't always there, but you know you're getting a motivated driver who's there to to further their career. And you know, Gary Curry said that he'd take a younger driver over that sort of higher paid, more experienced driver nine times out of ten, and, and sometimes ten times out of ten. And I think that that sh- that showed in this situation that it was the wrong move from from the start for McLaren. With with Mansell, I think he definitely made the right decision to to finish when he did. Um, you know, those who will have said he should have given it the season and, and should have tried to to battle it out obviously didn't see him fighting with those Simtex and uh, obviously Nigel was being paid a lot of money to be there and with that should come a certain level of performance and, and Nigel wasn't delivering that but it's not like they put someone else in and, and they suddenly moved five or six places up the grid the, the problems were, were still there so I think for Mansell it was a good move because it didn't you know although it did do a lot of damage to his legacy it, it could have could have been worse if he'd have spent the rest of the season fighting with those teams at the back of the grid and, and miles behind Mick Hakkinen so I think uh yeah, the, it's a shame this whole thing happened in the first place, but the the, the point where the, the two parted seems like, to me, the, the right decision on, on both counts. Yeah, there was no need to throw good money after bad and good time after bad, probably, as well. And I have to say, you know, we managed to get a mention of Schiattarella and a Simtek into this episode, so not all is lost. But that's the end of Nigel Mansell's F1 career, and it's also the end of our episode. So remember to get in touch with at We Are The Race on social media with your questions and comments for our series finale, where you can ask us anything about F1 from 1989 to 2005 using the hashtag BringBackV10s. We've got something very quirky for you next week where teams like Simtech would get a mention if they've been around at the time. We'll be taking a look back at the madness of F1's pre-qualifying era when sometimes we had almost 40 cars trying to get onto the grid for a given weekend. If you're a fan of rubbish F1 teams, that is an episode for you and we will see you next week to talk about it.